judgment. In some ways, your body is yours and there is a responsibility for it. Today, however, we are going to see that ultimately your body is not yours. Like every good gift, it has been given to you from your heavenly Father above. And for the believer, especially for the believer, we need to have a good understanding of who we are in the Lord and what is our responsibility to the good gifts that God has given us. Paul concludes our our text today, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And Paul concludes this part of his message with, You've been bought with a price, and you are not your own. Glorify God in your body. And this has massive theological implications and massive ethical and moral implications. If my body it belongs to God and I am to glorify Him um, what does that mean? What does that look like? In fact, so glorify God in your body, I would suggest that perhaps our primary, the primary goal of the Christian existence is to bring glory to God. Question one of the Westminster Statement one, and probably question one of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the purpose of life, and that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But listen to what the Bible says about glorifying God. Sometimes we think glorifying God is, i got to do some big thing. Man, I need to have some big ministry. I need to do something grand, something amazing. And perhaps God will use you in something grand and amazing and big and worldwide and global. But listen to the Word of God. Second, first Corinthians 10.32 Whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's right. Eating and drinking. Something mundane. Like a meal. Do it to the glory of God. Romans 15.7 When you welcome one another, do it to the glory of God. Did you know that when you are welcoming people into the church, do it for the glory of God. Greetings. I'm glad you're here today. God is glorified in your body. Colossians 1.20. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 1.20. When, when we are saying amen, do it to the glory of God. When we pray and you say amen, do so for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.5. When you give thanks, give thanks to the glory of God. Ephesians 1.12. Your hope of salvation is to the glory of God. Do you Is your hope in the salvation that Christ has provided? You glorify God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. Bearing fruit for the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2, 11. Confessing that Christ is the Lord of lords and King of kings to the glory of God. That every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So our job, our our task, if you will, is to give glory to God. And that does not mean we have to do some great thing. It is when we greet one another, when we eat and when we drink and when we declare the salvation of Christ our Lord, we do so to the glory 
of God. So with that, let me provide for you just some review and a little bit of preview of where our where we've been and where our message is, is going to go today. Paul began in chapter 5, Paul began a whole new section or a whole new topic in his first letter to the Corinthians. It's not completely different from what he'd been saying in chapters 1 through 4, because what was the problem in chapters 1 through 4? The problem was that there was arrogance and pride, and as a result of their arrogance and pride, there was disunity, there was sectarianism, they were... um, I'm fighting and infighting with one another. And Paul addressed that. And then in chapter 5, he um, um, he began to deal with the issue of sexual immorality in the church. And this also had to do with their arrogance and their pride. And it wasn't... Paul not only dealt with the offender, the person who was committing this um, immoral act, But even more importantly, he was dealing with the church who wasn't dealing with the issue. It was their their non-action. Paul is saying, there's this this sin going on and you guys aren't doing anything. Are you arrogant? Are you puffed up? And then we saw last week that the church had been um, taking one another to court, suing one another over really trivial matters. And, and Paul chastises them. And again, their non-response. You guys, really? You, you, you are taking these legal actions and you are defaming one another amongst godless people. And aren't you smart enough? Aren't you wise enough? Don't you have the Holy Spirit that you can't deal with these matters internally? So Paul is really um, chastising the church for their non-action. So as we we begin to go forward, let me just give you a, a broad view of where we're going to be going for really quite some time. Starting in chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7, Paul is dealing with the issue of sex. And um, so we're just going to be dealing with that issue for a while. And I know Christians get a bad rap. We they are usually seen as being very, um, have a low view of sexual intimacy. Um, but we don't. God made it, and he made it very good. So we're going to be dealing with that proper, a proper view of sexual intimacy, starting in chapter 5 and then today and then all the way through chapter 7. So in chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul is dealing with uh, sexual immorality that is outside of the bonds of uh, marriage, and then he will, in chapter 7, deal with proper sexual relationships within a marriage and what all that looks like. And so one of the things that Paul is going to be doing is he is going to be refuting some of the cultural norms, what society is saying. In fact, we're going to see today that the Corinthian church had adopted much of what society was saying about this topic and not looking at what does the Bible say? What does God's word say about this topic? And so the, we saw this even with... Um, 
the the issue of the man caught or caught but who was discovered having a relationship with his stepmother and Paul is saying man you got to deal with this and so their problem is is that they are probably more influenced by cultural norms rather than biblical norms. And so Paul is reminding them, listen, this is what God has said about these topics. So 1 Corinthians is really perhaps one of the most relevant letters in the Bible. People say, well, the Bible's not very relevant. They didn't know, you know, they believed in, I don't know, myths and, you know, leprechauns and fairy dust and no they had a good idea of what was going on in the world. They understood things very, very well. Or that they didn't understand uh, some new enlightened understanding of sexual intimacy. And it's like, no, they understood it pretty well. They weren't confused, but they had adopted wrong views. And so, in other words, there's nothing new under the sun. So, today we're going to look... um, uh, again, at the biblical understanding of se- uh, sexual immorality. And we have defined it very simply. Instead of me trying to share all of what sexual immorality is, because there's a host of things that the Bible lists under the big topic of sexual immorality, let me define sexual morality, because it's much simpler. In other words, it's kind of like if you know the genuine, then everything else that's not genuine is false. So let me describe the genuine. The genuine, we've done this pretty much every week, but just because we're so influenced by what people around us are saying... But here's the genuine. God has ordained and I would even say celebrates physical intimacy between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. That's it. That's it. Everything else? Sexual immorality. All right. So Paul's going to deal with that issue. So, if you will... Join with me and follow along as I read um, God's Word, and then we'll spend some time trying to unpack this very, very dense passage of text. All things are lawful to me, for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh." But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. So, 
Paul begins this issue with the body is for the Lord and he begins with this idea that all things are lawful but not... Well, he begins with that statement. And and most biblical students and have tried to understand, have, have understood that this would have been a, a saying or a maxim within the, uh, within the Corinthian church. In other words, all things are lawful. I'm free. I've been purchased by Christ. I can do what I want. Today, people would put it this way. They would use a, they would use actually a scripture to, um, justify their behavior. And what is it? We're not under law. We're under grace. As though now, because I'm under grace, I can live however I feel. I am free. In fact, there's a whole movement called the free grace movement that basically says that you can do whatever you want, live however you want, as long as you said the sinner's prayer at some point and really meant it, you can now do and live however you want because why? You're not under law but under grace. And if somebody like me would come along and say, God has forbidden or God prescribes a certain thing. Hey, man, you're a Pharisee. You're just a legalistic Pharisee. All things are lawful. I like the fact that Paul doesn't argue so much that case. He presents a different case. <clears throat> but not all things are helpful. We get, I I don't know, as as a pastor, I I get this question all the time. And the question is, can I do X and still be a Christian? As though people are looking for the lowest common denominator. What's the bare minimum I need to do to sneak across heaven's border? I want to come in legally, but I want to... First of all, if you're hoping to squeak in, we need to talk about your heart because maybe, maybe your heart needs to be regenerated. But anyways, people say, what can, what do I need to do? What, can I do X and be a, can I smoke weed and be a Christian? Do I have to go to church? Can't I, can't I like forget church and still be a Christian? Paul isn't going to go around answering all of those questions. What is the bare minimum? He's going, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Paul is assuming there is a certain amount of freedom for the Christian. But it is not only freedom from something, it is freedom for something. And I believe that Paul has more in mind here than just one's personal autonomy, but the good of others. So the question then that Paul is addressing is, all things are lawful for me, but do my actions benefit others? Do my actions not only benefit me, but do they benefit others? Do my actions foster godliness in myself, and do they foster godliness in others? So, can I smoke weed and be a Christian? Can I... Forsake being part of the corporate worship and still be a Christian. Paul would say, does that benefit others? How are you glorifying Christ? Is in your actions, is Christ being exalted? Are people being formed into the image of Christ by your actions? By your not coming to church 
Are the people in the church being formed in godliness? Are they hearing the amens? Are they giving glory to God because they hear you um, singing and making melody in your heart before the Lord? Are you, is that what's happening? Uh, is it helpful? So I glorify God in my body when others are edified. So Paul isn't getting into, yeah, well, you can do this, but not that. He's asking a much bit different question. And he's countering this cultural maxim by simply saying, is it helpful? Does it benefit your brother? Does it benefit your sister? Is Christ glorified? That would be his first question. All things are lawful for me. And then he addresses it in a second way. But I will not be dominated by anything. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. By the way, Paul uses this phrase, all things are lawful for me, four times. Twice here and two more times in chapter 10. This would be a cultural statement. One that the people were trying to use to justify whatever they did. Hey, everything's lawful for me. I'm free in Christ. I'm so free, I can do whatever. And Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. And in this particular context, we should remember that sex has the power to not only please, but to control. And it has a much stronger grip on us than we can possibly know. They claim to be free, but the question is, does that freedom end in enslavement? Enslavement to sin so that we begin to need it. Look at what's, what Peter says. He says, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Romans 6.16. Paul writes, you are slaves to the one you obey, either to sin or to obedience. And, and Jesus said, the one who sins is a slave to sin. And, and I'm going to say that sexual sin is perhaps, I'm going to get to this, is probably not the, I'm not going to say it's, it's probably the, one of the more unique, it has some of the most unique consequences. Maybe that's the way to put it. But it, it is a powerful, powerful um, act and it will enslave us. So they claim to be free. Hey, I'm free to do whatever. And Paul's saying, I don't think so. I think you actually, you've been dominated. You are enslaved to something. That's his question. Not, am I free to do this? He's saying, if you're, I'm not going to do anything that will overpower or enslave me. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. So the first issue that Paul deals with is this countering the cultural sayings, the uh, the popular statements, um, how they were being influenced from outside. Listen, man, I'm free. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm a Christian. Jesus loves me. Once saved, always saved. I got it. Paul is saying, is it helpful? And does it dominate you? Two completely different questions. And then we get this rather odd statement. I don't know if when I read this, if you thought, well, that's a weird statement. 
Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for good food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And God raised, and God raised the Lord and will raise us also by his power. So what is this food for the stomach and the stomach for food? Why is he bringing up stomachs and food? I'm glad you asked. This would have been another well-known statement within Greek culture. And for us to grasp what Paul is putting down here, we need to get a little bit of understanding of Greek philosophy. So are you ready? Yeah. I put it up here. Does matter matter? That's probably a good way of putting it. Does matter matter? This finds its source in the philosophy of Plato, but it become very, very, um, or or was be was an influential philosophy, and that is this, that the physical world of matter is unimportant, or this physical world is evil even. And it is the spiritual, the non-material that's important. It is the non-material that matters. So the thinking was this. What you do in your body doesn't matter because the physical, the body, is unimportant. What one does in the body doesn't affect the spirit or the soul, the immaterial part. So listen, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. It doesn't matter. Your body is going to, and we'll talk about this in a second, is going to die and dissolve and go away. All that matters is that immaterial part of you. This is just basic new age. New age isn't new. What do they say? Listen, The spark of divinity is within you. You're all divine and it's within you. And that's what matters is to find the divinity within you. Paul is going to argue that you cannot separate body and soul, the material and the immaterial. And this was anathema to first century Greek culture. So they would say that the human soul is trapped in the prison house of the body. This body is a coffin. And within this coffin is that which really matters, the soul. And so what we need to do is foster the soul, the spirit, the immaterial part of it. But the body is just a tomb. Does that make, are you with me on that? That's the, that's the general idea. So now that we are all experts in Platonic philosophy, let's get back to this food and stomach thing. Does matter matter? Here's the argument. God gave us hunger pangs. He gave us an appetite for food. Some of you are feeling them right now. I'll be done eventually. God gave us an appetite a natural appetite for food, and he even gave us organs to fulfill that appetite. Starting to get where, I, where I'm going to go with this? So, God gave us hunger pangs, and he gave us a stomach that would help meet that need, quiet that urge, temper or satisfy that appetite, God gave us sexual desires and a sexual appetite and he gave us the apparatus to fulfill that appetite. And so 
just as the stomach is for food and food for the stomach. So, you know, listen. God gave us the organs and God gave us the appetites, so live it up. The body doesn't matter. That's the that's the general argument that, that is going on. In other words, what one does in the body does not affect the soul. Paul's going to turn this thinking upside down. And, and he's going to do it in a sense. At first, he's going to agree with this idea. They say, and listen, God is going to destroy them both. And I think, Paul, yeah, God is going to destroy both stomach and food and the body. All of those things are going to be destroyed. The reasoning here is since God is going to destroy both the stomach and the body, what we have to do, what we, what we do with it has no moral consequence. So, in other words, I, I can eat as much as I want, as unhealthily as I want. I can, I can indulge, I can use food as a crutch. It doesn't matter, since after all, God is going to destroy both body and stomach and food anyways. There is no moral consequence. Paul now affirms that reality. Temporal things indeed will be undone, but that is not the end of all things. Temporal things like stomachs and food is going to be undone. The body is going to be undone. But do not think that's the end of the body. Now Paul begins to shift. He says, that's not the end of things. See, you think that's the end of things. You think the body goes into the ground and it dissolves and it becomes worm food and that's that and your spirit goes off and it enjoys some incredible existence in some heavenly realm. And Paul is saying, no. Soul and body are not two mutually exclusive entities. You see, the Christian hope, the Christian hope is not that we will die and one day be disembodied spirits living in the presence of God. That's a myth. Sometimes we see it promoted by, you know, we're like, angels sitting on a cloud playing a harp or something like that, or we're disembodied spirits, that we live in this this um, spiritual realm. We do believe that today, if God forbid, but if God has ordained so, that today would be one of our last days. We believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that your body will be buried or be uh, cremated or frozen. I don't know if they still do that, but something is going to happen to your body and yes, that immaterial part of you will be in the presence of God. Right now, those who have died are spirit, spiritually in the presence of God. But that is not the ultimate end of the human existence. One day, when Christ returns, our bodies will be resurrected. We will have physical bodies like Christ has a physical body. It is a glorified body and we will live not in some spiritual realm but in a recreated heaven and earth. So Paul is saying, yeah, the body is going to be destroyed but that's not the end of the body. God is going to raise it up just as he raised up Christ. So Paul is now looking at um, all of this through the resurrection, through the filter of the resurrection. Our bodies will also be revived. So God will raise the body just as God raised Christ. So Paul's 
focus now is on Christ. And he says, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. In other words, what one does with the body has eternal consequences since God will raise it from the grave. And in fact, he indwells our body, but we'll get to that in verse 19. The body is for Christ and to belong to him and serve him. And Christ is for the body to inhabit and glorify it. All right, so Paul now says, listen, this idea that there's this material and immaterial part of you and they make that you can eat, drink and be merry and for tomorrow you die and that your body doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want with it. Paul flatly rejects that idea that what you do in the body affects the soul. What you do in the body affects your immaterial part. You can't separate those two things. And so, disobeying God in the area of sexual relations is a biological thing. It is in the body. But don't think for a moment, Paul says, that it has no impact on that spiritual aspect of you upon your soul. And so... He now begins to expand on this and he, and he begins to talk about how we are members of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. See, when we became Christians, we were joined in union with Christ. And our being now is that we are joined with him. So what we do in the body involves Christ. Paul would say then to engage with a prostitute is to bring Christ into that relationship. And now none of us would say, well, I would never do that. Paul is saying, that's what you're doing. When you are engaging in an immoral relationship, and some of you may be saying, well, that's good because I would never see a prostitute. But I think this can be expanded to all sexual immorality. We are bringing Christ into that relationship. And if it's an immoral relationship, we are bringing Christ into it. And Paul goes all the way back to Genesis to, to demonstrate that there is a spiritual aspect to the physical act. A bond takes place. Two people become one. God created male and female, and it was very good. And Adam even sang of this new relationship. I think I mentioned a a while back, I think that's the first song in the Bible, when Adam sang about his wife. And he said, and the two will now, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And for this reason, a man will leave his, his father and his mother and the two will become one flesh. And that's not just physical, but it, but it is enhanced through a physical relationship. There is a uniting effect when we have sex. And this is why God has ordained this gift to be reserved for the institute of marriage. Because there is a uniting effect. See, there is no such thing as casual sex, regardless of how casually we may think of it. I know we try to think, oh, this is just a biological thing. It's just, you know, I got an urge and I'm just going to satisfy that desire. But even as something as remote and un and distant as, say, 
prostitute and her client, Paul is even saying, even then something happens. Something happens even in that remote encounter. So it's not just a biological act absent of a spiritual component. Lewis Smedes, in, in a book that he wrote called Sex for the Christian, writes, <clears throat> Afterwards, the two people rarely feel the same about each other. They may love each other more, they may resent each other, or feel more comfortable with each other. But after intercourse, the relationship is not what it was before. So, sexual sins are especially consequential. I'm not saying that they are worse, but I am saying that they have a different set of consequences. A lot of times we have people ask, you know, is one sin worse than another? And and my answer is usually yes and no. I'm a great politician, right? Um, no, one sin is not greater than the other than another in the sense that they both make a that they all make us sinners before God. But consequences are different. I mean, if somebody comes into my my office and says, "Pastor, I need to talk to you." I read in the Bible it says Jesus said that if you're angry with your brother, it's like the sin of murder. And I'm angry with my brother. Well, that's one thing. Somebody comes into my office and says, Pastor, I murdered my brother. Well, now, that's something completely different. I would much rather have you come in and say, I'm angry with my brother. We can deal with that. Do they both separate you from from God? Yeah. Does confession need to take place? Yes. Will God forgive them? Yes. But don't think for a moment the consequences are exactly the same. They are not. Sexual sins seem to have a... They are unique in the sense of what they do to the person. So, all things are lawful, Paul says, but not all things are helpful, nor do we want to be dominated by anything. Listen, what you do in the body affects what you do, what your, your soul, the, the body and the, the spirit are are not mutually, are, are not isolated, that what you do in your body will have an impact on that immaterial part of you. And then Paul goes on, <clears throat> and he says <clears throat> this, uh, flee sexual immorality. Oh. I don't think I really need to spend a lot of time with that, but but I'm a preacher, so... I think Joseph's our biblical example here. Flee sexual immorality. Run for your life. So so if you're not familiar with the story in the book of Genesis, um, Joseph is a slave. He's been sold to Egypt, and he has been purchased by a man by the name of Potiphar. And he... Um, he rises through the ranks, and Potiphar has put him in charge of his entire house, and he is um, really just, you know excelling, and he has a lot of privilege, and he has a lot of uh, great things going on in his life, and Potiphar's wife seduces Joseph, and, and continually does so, and eventually, he's in a situation where they are alone, and Joseph runs for his life. He did not reason, he did not, well, 
his reasoning was very interesting because his reasoning wasn't, um, his reasoning was, how can I do this to God? God has blessed me. How can I violate the love that God has bestowed upon me? And, and how can I do such a cruel thing against um, Potiphar who has been nothing but kind to me? And he runs for his life. Runs for his life. He flees. There's a historical example. I don't know how true it is. I haven't been able to fa- to, to fact check it. Maybe. But it, it explains the point well. Augustine, the, the church, 5th century um, church theologian, was known for being very, very, <clears throat> had a very promiscuous life prior to becoming a Christian. And one day he is walking and he sees one of uh, his former lovers on the street and he turns and runs for his life. And she cries out, Augustine, it is I. And without even looking back, he says, yes, but it is not I. I'm a different person. I see who you are. There are... I don't even want to be in the same vicinity. I need to run for my life. I know myself. Augustine is saying, I know who I am. I will not even... I'm I'm fleeing from this thing. So Paul's admonition is not um, limited to engagement with a prostitute, but all sexual immorality. And verse 18 is a very difficult verse. um, And scholars have really worked hard to deal with it. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This idea of against the body, sin, and I've already talked about this, sin affects the person in a unique way. It's not the worst sin, but perhaps it is the most unique. That is, it is bent on personal gratification, and it drives us like no other. And we will risk anything for that moment of personal gratification. Because sexual intimacy is the deepest uniting of two persons, its misuse corrupts on the deepest human level. And then Paul begins to wrap this up. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. So glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Sexual immorality defiles the temple, and perhaps maybe our great one of our greatest uh, examples of this is, is a, again a historical example of a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and perhaps some of you have heard of this individual, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, second century B.C. Um, Jews were um, uh, occupied by the Greek by um, the Greek Empire. Um, Alexander the Great is dead. His empire has been split up. And the Jews have um, a very cruel individual who is overseeing, who is in control of their land. And his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, Epiphanes is the name that he gave himself. It's actually Antiochus IV. But he gave himself Epiphanes because I think it means the glorious one, something like that. So... But in order to 
show his contempt for the Jews, he went into the temple. The second temple, the one that had been built after Solomon's temple. And he set up an idol of Zeus and he sacrificed swine on the altar. This was perhaps one of the most abhorrent things that the Jewish people encountered. It began a war. You hear about the Maccabean War. This is what got it going or certainly flared it up. And this was such a significant thing to the Jews. This defiling of the temple was so significant. They called it the abomination of desolation. And Jesus refers to the end time uh, a final system or perhaps even a ruler whose acts he refers to as the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus refers to the act of Antiochus Epiphanes as being of such severe, grotesque immorality that he applies it then as a foreshadowing of what the world might be able to expect of a coming leader or system. It defiled the temple, sacrificing pigs on the altar and bringing Zeus, an idol of Zeus, into the temple. It defiled it. Paul is saying, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Are you going to bring an idol in? Are you going to sacrifice swine? Today, you and I would, or even in our legal system, to defile a church would be considered a hate crime. If we came in and there's swastikas all over the place and, I don't know, just all sorts of vile things, we would condemn the act. How dare somebody enter into a church and defile the sanctuary? Paul is saying, don't you know? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What are you doing defiling it? Do not be Antiochus Epiphanes. Do not act as one who defiles a church building. We would, we would have a problem with an individual defiling a church building, but Paul is saying, you're the temple. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit you have from God, that is God's gift and God's blessing to you. His own presence is His blessing to you. Let's not defile that. And then Paul goes on and says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. And now we get into, I began with my body, my choice. Paul would say, perhaps to a certain degree, but let me clarify things. You're not your own. The Lord has full property rights over you. Sometimes we, we say, especially when we're talking about money, we say things, well, everything, of our, everything we have, all of our assets, everything we own belongs to God. It's true. We might even say, you know, even my job and my family, that all belongs to God. And God is even saying, your body is mine. I redeemed you. I have full property rights. Yes, even your body, it belongs to me. This is language of the slave market. 
when one purchased a prisoner of war, that person, that prisoner, that that redeemed prisoner became the property of the one who freed him. That person was neither capable nor willing to escape the bonds. We are neither capable nor willing to escape the bonds of sin. And our Redeemer came and paid for our release. We now belong to him. Full stop. You've been bought with a price. Glorify, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is not your own. You have been bought with a price. And the price was not silver or gold. It was the most valuable life of Jesus Christ. First Peter one eighteen. Is this knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. You were purchased not with silver or gold, something way more valuable, eternally more valuable, that is the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, who put on flesh and dwelt among us. Our sins have been forgiven once for all. The payment is sufficient. And so Paul concludes with this, so glorify God in your body. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Now do what? Glorify God in your body. What does that mean? Think very simply, it means to use your body in ways that will show that God is more satisfying, more precious, more to be desired, more glorious than anything else the body craves. So my charge to you this morning is let us glorify God in our bodies. I'm going to conclude with this, and my conclusion actually is not my own. I'm going to read a lengthy quote from Stephen Um and his commentary the way he concludes in his commentary this section. And um, so full credit to him. There's a great story in the Old Testament about God telling one of his prophets to marry a girl whom he knew would absolutely break his heart. She was a girl with a spotty past and a fickle heart who would time and again spurn his love and seek solace in the arms of other lovers. The story, as you may know, sort of comes to a head when the woman finds herself on the bidding block. Destitute and dejected, with no options to dig herself out of the debt that she has incurred. So she stands there on that bidding block, naked and under the scrutinizing gaze of the bidders, awaiting the verdict that would decide her fate forever. But as the auction begins, something strange happens. She hears faintly, yet unmistakably, a voice in her ears, five shekels. It's one that she knows all too well. Ten shekels. But why would he do this? Fifteen shekels sold. She's been bought by the man she had spurned, the man whose heart she had broken time and again. And as she is trying to make sense of what has just happened, it suddenly dawns on her and her heart sinks because she knows there's only one reason why he would do something like this. He'd have his revenge on her. So she lifts her head, braces herself to get what's coming to her. But what happens next is of even greater surprise because she's greeted not by indignation, but by an embrace and a smile that seems to say, I love you, let's go home. 
Romantic dramas eat your heart out. But as incredible as this story is, it is but a faint echo of the great drama that has animated our entire world and each of our lives. The one in which that great lover, who despite our spotty past and our fickle hearts, whose love we spurned and whose heart we broke, didn't just bid to get the love of his life back, but gave all, body and soul, to have us as his own once more. And when we lift our heads and look at the cross, we know for sure that he's not out for revenge because we're greeted not by indignation, but by a kind smile and a warm embrace that says, I love you more than you will ever know. Let's go home. You were bought with a price. Verse 20 says, you are not your own. Verse 19. But why would you want to be when the one who has bought you loves you like that? This might be the most compelling reason to take our bodies and do with them and what we do with them seriously, not because we're free but or even because we matter, but because we were bought by someone who gave all to have us. In conclusion, people are free. People matter. They were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body by taking it and what we do with it seriously. Our Lord and our God, we come before you this day and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you have purchased us. We belong wholly to you. There's not one part of it that is not ours, that it does not belong to you. Forgive us, Lord God, for thinking that this is somehow mine and I can do with it as I please. But Lord, today we... We give up the rights even to our body. We give them to you. Do with us as you see fit. And I pray, Lord God, that we would do, that we would understand that we are, what a glorious promise. We are the temple, the the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Have mercy upon us, Lord God. Let us love you because of the great love that you've had for us. And let us honor you in all that we say and do. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.